You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning. This is the 3CR Garden Show and I'm Virginia Hayward. With me in the studio are Peter Harris, begonia breeder extraordinaire and supplier of begonias, and Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants at Macedon, and the horticulturist, and a tour leader, (laughs) and sometime various other things as well. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Good morning, Virginia. Virginia. Yes, I'm glad to be back on deck, I guess, after being away for weeks. I don't know whether anybody's missed me, but there you go. Um, Back from the depths of New Zealand and sort of happy to be home now. Yes, you had a... It seemed like quite a long tour. Well, it wasn't actually all that long. It was 18 days, um, which isn't the longest tour I lead. Normally it's 21 to 23 days that we we lead. Um, But it was an eventful tour in lots of ways, in both positive and negative ways, because, of course, there's extra complexity these days with COVID and everything else that tends to crop up on a regular basis um but we had nice weather in new zealand saw some fantastic gardens including one attached to a nursery that is about a hundred acres of garden (laughs) wow (laughs) i i was reading the notes before we went there and i thought oh it's got to be some sort of printing error it's got to be 10 acres or something like that but no it was in fact a hundred acres out of a 200 acre property that has been turned over to garden and wow. whereabouts was that, Stephen? Well, it's in the South Island, mm. uh, uh, between Invercargill and uh, Dunedin, so out there somewhere. Somewhere uh, quite cold. In down it. in the cold areas, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was remarkable. And, I mean, the place was rattling with rhododendrons and molluscs and beautiful maples and uh, lakes and ponds and, yeah, just fabulous. And, of course, we got out into the wild as well, so we <coughs> walked in beach forests. Uh, we went into subalpine areas up near Mount Cook. Uh, we saw the beautiful Mount Cook lily, Ranunculus lyellii in flower, which is one of New Zealand's um, most remarkable plants. Uh, so yeah, it was a great trip away. So uh, thoroughly enjoyed myself, uh, but I, you know, glad to be home. I do think that New Zealand is one of the best places in the world for gardens. Oh. I mean, you just see extraordinary gardens there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got the climate and the soil types and, you know, everything's in the in favour of great gardening. And they don't have the, you know, the extremes of cold that you get in Britain. Mm. So they, are, they just do have... The, and they have that dedication to Mediterranean plants. Yeah, they are. They're remarkable. So, yes, so we had a great time. So uh, but glad to be back and... Uh, We'll get through all the Christmas and New Year stuff and then we'll be starting and think about all of next year's tours, I guess. I do think also that Christchurch is just such a fabulous town. I mean, to go to a city where there's nothing as tall as the trees and they have such brilliant trees in Christchurch, Mm. I thought that was absolutely wonderful to see 
a city where the trees were the dominant factor. Oh, it was exciting. Yeah, although I, I did find Christchurch a little depressing because of so many of the buildings that disappeared with the um, earthquake. earthquake. And mm. uh, I actually christened it the, the, the city of car parks <laughs> because all the <laughs> vacant spaces have been taken up with car park at this stage. So there's car parking everywhere in Christchurch, but the Botanic Gardens are stunning. Um, Abs- and there's a... a, a a rose garden there, mm. not as part of next to the botanic gardens, yeah. which is probably the best rose garden I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah, so it is. It's very worthwhile going to, and there's some stunningly beautiful old trees there. And because of their depths of soil and their their you know, good rainfalls and stuff that they get in uh, most parts of New Zealand, uh, the trees are immense. Yes, you know the, these exotic trees have grown into just these vast big trees. Mm. I mean, you see sequoias over there that seem to be nearly as big as the ones in the wild. It's just Remarkable considering the short span of white settlement in New Zealand um, to have these vast big trees. Yeah. So, yeah, so we loved it. It was a good good trip and uh, I would recommend it to anybody. I know it's going ahead again next year, although I'm not leading it. Um, but if anybody's interested, November next year, there'll be a, another trip off to New Zealand with Australians studying abroad. So well worth considering. And Pete, you've been... Well, we've been busy. We're we're doing begonias. We're in flat out pricking off and potting up. Um, we we're not quite as well travelled as Stephen. We're, <laughs> we we we've seen, put popped our hand up to do Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show next year. So we need to grow an extra three thousand plants for that, um, which is keeping us all busy. Um, and and at the moment we they're ranging from these little baby seedlings right up to we've we've started potting into the two hundred millimeter pots. So yeah, I'm I'm begonia and fuchsia out at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's an. I just want Christmas to come around so I can have a day off. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh dear. Well, you so did bring you, it on yourself. Yeah, I know. So you will be taking both begonias and fuchsias to the Melbourne flower show mm. next year. Yes, we will. Yep. And what's yep. the dates of that? Do you know? I don't know that at the moment. But no. It's generally the last weekend in, fe- in in March. Yes, I think um, it is. I think take, it takes in that last Wednesday, Wednesday and that first Saturday and Sunday mm. of April, as a general. I haven't looked closely enough yet. Yes. It's too it's, far off. It's, it's, yes. I'm just flat out. We're just frantic. And, and, of course, we verged on a frost up there this morning, which is over in the Massenden <laughs> Ranges, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's got its own challenges. And we're, we're that wet. We're, we're trying to build another span for, for my begonia show because we want to put the fuchsias <laughs> into their own area and the begonias into their own area. And um, the poor old builder can't get on the soil because we are so wet. We can't <laughs> mow lawns. We're getting mowers. Bogged. I mean, my worst scenario is now we'll put the slashes on the back of the tractor and get the car park organised a few weeks before. Well, I'm having the Christmas um, function for the end of year for a plant trust on Sunday. <laughs> yep. And at the moment, I can't get a mower into my place. It's, it's called Butterfly Habitat, but don't worry about it. <laughs> one, of, one of the girls at work was saying on Friday that... Trentham has had 1,640 millimetres of rain this year. I mean, and I'm, I'm trying to visualise. That's, that's that much rain. He's, I, he's I, holding... Yes, yeah, yeah, this is great radio. Uh, <laughs> to my, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm putting lines across my chest and I'm yeah. six foot three. Um, yeah. And that, 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 that depth that of water... That um, is a lot. That is a lot. Which is really good mm. for the environment and it's really good for our river systems. Um, and one, one, of, one of my girls in the packing shed drove across to Adelaide yesterday to pick up some bits and pieces and she sent me a photograph at Taylor Bend of the Murray River and mm. the Murray River obviously down that end mm. is normally 
blocked up and, yeah. and very little flow through. The Murray is right up. It's it's as high as I've ever seen it. It's so, wonderful, isn't it? Um, that will be so good. It's been fantastic. Mm. So I'm whinging and bleating about the rain, as are a lot of people. <laughs> but do. it's also doing a mm. lot of good through the, for, well, for the ecosystem. Well, we were going to be going to um, to another a rose garden on Sunday, but we're not able because it's just too wet. John Newstick's garden. Oh, Newstick. And it's just too wet. We can't go. Yeah. And my garden is on top of the hill. John's is on the bottom of the hill. And you'd think on top of the hill I'd be fine, but I'm squelching, just (laughs) absolutely squelching. The water table and the grass have met. Yeah, right. In case anybody's interested, I've just done some Googling. The Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show is on from the 29th of March to the 2nd of April this coming year. So there you go. There's dates to lock away in your diary. In the diary, absolutely. So and be a bit of fun for us all? <laughs> because we're coming up to Christmas, we don't have many announcements today, but there are things going on in the Royal Botanic Gardens. In And, and these are not particularly um, gardening things, actually. They've got Shakespeare, Much Ado About Nothing, from December the 17th to February the 4th, Romeo and Juliet from February the 10th to March the 11th. Right through February on Sundays, there's music evenings, there's Wind in the Willows, which I often see because I, I'm a guide there and I mm. walk past it and it does just look to be so much fun. Wind in the Willows for the kids, December the 16th, January the 29th. And, of course, then there's the Arab, Arab, Aboriginal Heritage Walks, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every week. And every week, guides, of which I am one, take a free walk at 10.30 every day and Saturday and Sunday at 1.30. So, and the gardens, the botanic gardens are looking absolutely fabulous. Mm. And I believe Cranbourne is also looking absolutely fabulous. So do visit your botanic gardens, people. They're really, really worth it. And we're very lucky to have them. Absolutely, we are. Um, Virginia, when you were asking about shows and events coming up, I forgot all about the um, the Werribee Rose and Rose show next weekend, I believe. It's been delayed because of the wet weather, but I believe Stephen, it's on next weekend. could you look weekend. that one up? Oh, give me a minute. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I am fairly certain it's on next weekend down at Werribee Mansion. The mansion yes, that would be right. Um, and while Stephen looks that up, um, I'll put something to you. We have already had texts in. An Osmanthus fortunii was in a pot but has been in the ground for about a year and has still and has never flowered. Has anyone got an opinion? Well, uh, one fortunii needs to get to a decent size before it flowers and it's not necessarily about time, it's about size of plant. It needs to get a little bit of oomph to it before it'll start to flower. Uh, I've got a big old one in the nursery garden, uh, flowers regularly every year for me, but I'm sure it was in the ground for four or five years before it really started to come on board. So I think with with that particular thought in mind, I think it's just a matter of patience. If the plant is healthy and since it's come out of the pot, if it's growing, then it will settle down and flower in due course. So I think you've just got to be patient, uh, unfortunately. Okay, well, that makes absolute sense to me. And Charlotte wants to know, what is the rule of thumb of when to clip box hedges? Mm. Um, I'm about to clip uh, mine now. Up, up winter. 
generally winter. A lot of box hedges take on that dull yellow to orange look over winter to avoid that. Firstly, give them a really good feed of some dolomite lime um, and then winter prune. And then they fluff away in spring and it's all, they're all nice and lush right the way through the mm. season. So yeah. you can always have supplement. Just avoid pruning nearly any hedge, whether it's box or otherwise, if you know you're going to get a blast of heat straight after because <laughs> you're exposing all that foliage that it was underneath the new growth and it will burn. So Absolutely. it's really important to be careful with that. All right, found the dates. Uh, State Rose and Garden Show, 10th and 11th of December. Well, done, well done, PE. <laughs> so there you go. So that's on down at um, the Werribee Rose Gardens. Um, I'm trying to find times, but I don't seem to be able to find the times. But it's uh, it's. I believe it's ten to four. I was going to say it'd be probably ten to four. And I also think that one's a Werribee... Uh, that's that's the the Shire one, and I think that one's free entry, isn't it? Absolutely can't, no idea. Yeah, I can't that's, find anything that's, about. I'm pretty sure that's anyway, by the Werribee City Council, and it's a free entry one. That one, it's a it's a community um, event, and people have got time uh, to check. Ten to four, and free Wyndham City. Yes. Event. <laughs> well done, Peter. Good on Pete. Good on you, Pete. Uh, I don't need to look things up. I'll just assume you know. Oh no! Don't do that. Never ever do that, Stephen. Uh, dear. <laughs> dear. Yes, well, I, I think um, I think on not pruning not pruning your hedges when there's about to be hot weather. I think the other thing too is that we have had such cold, wet weather that a lot of things are going to be in a bit of shock yeah. after today, which is going to get up to thirty. Even yesterday, uh, I was saying to Pete on the way down in the car. Um, I've got some uh, Digitalis septrum, which was um, Isoplexus septrum in, in, in small pots up at the nursery, and it has big leaves, and it's semi-shade-loving, whereas the others seem to grow quite well out in full sun. And it was out in full sun. They were in six-inch pots, and they looked fantastic. And yesterday afternoon I walked past and there was a little bit of foliage burn on them already. Mm. So I'm going to have to move them in today somewhere where they're a bit But I shade. think the other thing is, if you get burned, don't rush off and prune it off because no. it's you'll just get new growth come up and it'll get burnt. I mean, leave the burn on for some weeks. Yeah, yeah. Well, in my case, I just tell people that's natural. <laughs> and, and, and while we're on this, the subject of the weather changing, I bought some pots from a, a local nursery um, on Friday and they were quite light when I picked them up. And I went home on Saturday morning and, and watered them with the hose and I probably gave them three litres of water and I thought... That was very dry and I picked the pot up and it was still very light and I tipped the pot out and it's still bone dry. So what's happening is, um, is it hydrophobic? The yes. Water, the soils become hydrophobic. So no matter how much water I'm pouring on that pot now, it's not going to get wet. The only way to get that pot wet now is to dunk it in a bucket of water and get get all of those, the, 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 the air porosity filled up with water and then let the pot drain. So if you're at home and your pots are wilting, if you can, just have a quick feel of, of the weight of the pot and mm. that will show you fairly quickly. If it's in a concrete pot or, a, or an earthenware pot, it's going to be hard, but you, you need to be aware at the moment that because of this unusually warm streak, you need to pay a bit more attention to how much water you're yeah, popping on your pot And things dry out really, really quickly, mm. particularly if you've got a decent-sized root system in that pot. It'll suck up nearly all the moisture very fast. And because we've been sort of 
lulled. Um, the plants haven't had to work hard to no. dry, and so the soils haven't been drying out as yeah. rapidly. So, mm. yes, yeah, so you do need to keep an eye on things when it does start suddenly come warm like this. And yet I am still dealing with the fact that I've got things dying because they've been... I've got salvias mm. dying because they've been too wet. Yeah, well, and I nearly had a frost. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so much fun gardening in this country. Oh, it's got well. its own challenges this yeah, year, hasn't it, has it certainly what? Now, yes. let, let me give out our numbers. If you'd like to ring us... On the 3CR Garden Show, ring 94190155 or if you'd like to leave a text, 0488 809 855 but you can't send photos to the text line, we don't see those. And if you would like to send in an email, gardening at 3cr.org.au but that will be read next week by, I cannot remember, it's either Chloe or AB will be on next week. Uh, so your emails will turn up next week, but you can ring us today now on 94190155 because the 3CR Garden Show loves to talk to you. Yeah, well, of course we do. It's what we're here for. That's what we're we, here for. Yes, we want to actually chat in person to people. It's much better fun. Um, and also, we can ask you questions. So if you ask us a question, we can ask you follow-up questions to make sure we give you the right answer. Whereas if you send a text in or send us an email, sometimes not all the information is there that we need to actually be useful. So by ringing in, we can query you as well and get all of the information we need. Susie, Susie has texted in saying, what plants could we recommend for deterring mosquitoes? None. <laughs> this business about deterring insect pests with plants is a nonsense because it's the volatile oils in the plant that are deterrents. So unless you're out there crushing them every minute to, uh, to let the volatile oils out of the plant, the mosquitoes will just fly around it. So all this business about mozzie buster plants and other sundry things, it's absolute nonsense. I don't care what anybody says unless you're out there crushing the plants. So citronella, all those other plants that people say, oh, you plant those because they'll keep away flies or mozzies or whatever. It's absolute nonsense because it can't work unless the plant is being crushed all the time. So rub them on you, fine. But the plant itself is not going to deter insects. It doesn't work. Unless it's unless it's right by where you're walking and you keep knocking it and, and yeah. letting out those oils. Yes, but that's the thing. It's got to be the volatile oils that do the job. So yes, rub citronella all over yourself and it'll probably keep the mozzies away from you. But the plant itself isn't going to keep mozzies out of the garden. Hmm. It just doesn't work that way. I know from, I have got... I've got mosquitoes everywhere. Oh, this year they're all over the place. Yes, look, Peter's mm. showing us some mm. of his mosquito mm. bites. That's lovely, Peter, I'm, I'm, first it, thing in the morning. It's, it's horrible because I've never, I've never been troubled by mosquitoes ever. Yeah, um, but they're, they're big enough to carry you away this year. But the other thing, I've also got some really tiny ones, mm. which I find much harder because the big ones are easier to just clap. Yeah. Oh, the blood's not as good picking up your way as it's <laughs> yeah, down our way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I've know. got both. But yeah, <laughs> mosquitoes are going to be one of those things that uh, are just going to be rife this year. There's not that much you can do about it. Uh, there's far too much standing water around. And, uh, yeah, the wrigglers are all getting ready to escape out of there and it's warm weather will bring them out. And they're at their most active early and late, aren't mm. they? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, so become the... a vampire and work at night. 
oh, okay. That'll, yeah. that'll put the lights on and do some potting. Well yes. <laughs> I mean, that is the sad thing about mosquitoes. One likes to have a meal outside yeah. in these long nights and it's just when they are at their most active. Yeah, exactly. So they drove us yeah. inside last so, night. So, yeah, so I hope I've debunked the plant and mozzie thing a little bit because it drives me nuts when people are advertising plants that are going to keep away insect pests and it just doesn't work. I mean, it can't. So it's just not logical. So anyhow, sorry to be the debunker, but there you go. Bearer of bad news. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure we'll have some calls in saying that's not true. No, well, my experience is yes. Yeah, yeah well, but any, any, of, any of those chamomile, pyrethrumy type plants um, mm. seem to work quite well. Mm. Um, but yep, put the budgie smugglers on and roll in them. <laughs> 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 there was a mental picture I didn't need this morning. Oh come on, Stephen. <laughs> Now I've got another another text. Hello. I planted some grafted passion fruits and started to notice I loathe grafted mm. passion fruit. Oh, me and, too. And started to notice the rootstock plant popping up around the area. So I have removed the passion fruits altogether. The grafted rootstock, unfortunately, keeps popping up around the garden now. I keep pulling it out, but I can't seem to get on top of it. What is the best way to deal with these weeds? I believe it's the blue passion fruit. Thank you, Ash from Frankston South. Well, one, I don't think you'll find it is the blue passion fruit. I think you'll find it is the yellow banana fruit passion fruit. No. no. So about 10 years ago, we did Melbourne National Flower and Garden Show and I put a graft of passion fruit into a 10-inch pot and we knocked that pot out and we sat it on top of its pot, inverted pot, so people could see thousands and thousands of suckers around the outside of the pot. So black passion fruits, it, it's not a banana passion fruit, it is a seedling passion fruit and it's not the edible passion fruit. I don't know exactly which one it is. Um, I, it took me about eight years to get rid of suckers at a little property I had over in Sylvan and they went under a 30 metre concrete slab and up the other side. Um, all you can do is keep the roundup up to it and that's the only thing that works. Hot water isn't going to work, it's roundup and it's on it all the time. And it's just one of those unfortunate suckering problems with passion fruit. Passion fruit on their own rootstock is... It, 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 it's not as long lived, but you don't have that suckering problem. And with passion fruits, while we're there, you should probably be planting a new passion fruit every couple of years because they're fairly short lived. And also, I can't think of any reason not to plant the actual passion fruit. Why you need them grafted? They're more expensive. Yeah, and uh, look, I think it was a bit of a um, PR ploy, really. Uh, I don't know, but um, uh, there's no need for some plants to be grafted, and. Uh, Sometimes nurseries do it for expediency's sake. I mean, a lot of the uh, bare-rooted tree growers, they graft or bud practically everything because it fits into their yearly routine, whereas if they were growing it from cuttings or whatever, uh, then they have to do that when they're doing something else. So there's quite a number of um, particularly ornamental um, deciduous plants that would be far better off if they were growing on their own roots, but the growers bud them or graft them because it just what they do for the rest uh, at that time of the year is do all their budding and grafting and they get a saleable plant faster yeah but in doing that the understock problems are yeah. the trade-off yeah exactly um, so, so yeah so it's a, it's one of those issues in in the nursery industry that should be addressed at some point by people um but i know. definitely had a grafted passion fruit that was grafted onto a banana passion fruit so and because it got away, that's, mm. I found out the hard way. And it, like you, it took, I, I didn't poison it. I just pulled it out solidly. But it took it about five years to yeah. 
At least, at least with the banana passion fruit unstock, you would have had some form of you'd have had banana passion fruit. Yes. But that seedling passion fruit that's used, it, it gives you. I, I, I'd love a dollar for every time I've done a show or a talk or something, and somebody said, "I've got a passion fruit. It flowers, but it never, ever, ever has fruit." And when you look at that foliage, it's got that bluey, distinct look to its foliage. It's that one that it never, ever has any fruit on it. It's just the flowering. Yeah, so it's taken over um, from the the top. Yep, that's what happens. So the advice is to buy passion fruits that are not grafted. Yes. Unfortunately, and yes, and be prepared to put one in every couple of years. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yep. Well, you know, there's a lot of plants that fit into that. I mean, we all accept that. You know, you buy pansies every year. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, you, you could also. I, I remember a, a gardening Australia program in the 1970s. It was that's. that's I go back that far. <laughs> oh dear, we're and, starting to feel our age. And now. Peter Cundall was planting passion fruit seed and said, "There's no blooming reason why you can't." And mm. he was so true. I mean, they will come up if you put them in in the heat of summer. They'll come up quite. They'll germinate. It might take three or four weeks, but they'll still come up. Um, from the passion fruit you're eating. From the passion fruit you buy, Mm. absolutely, whether it be the black passion fruit or the banana passion Mm. fruit, which is a lovely thing, by the way, Virginia, that that big pink flower, come on. The pink flower is beautiful, but around the dandenongs it's really got away. It it, 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 it is out of control up there in certain spots. And it looks fabulous, but it it doesn't make it any less weedy. No, no. But it does go very well with the angle onion. It's a very attractive one. <laughs> Another dandenong rangers <laughs> one, that one? Yes. yes. It's becoming a Macedon rangers one as well. There's a lot of angle onions starting to come up in different spots around Onion our, weed. Yeah, onion weed. Is yeah. that the same one? Like I, I watch a few Sheffy programs. Is that the same one that the, the English are calling wild garlic? No, that's another species again. Um, oh. That's Allium... Ursulum? I think it has a broad leaf. It has a big rounded leaf. You see it growing through the forests in it's northern France. Um, and it's quite a different plant again, and my, which my could friend... also become weedy if it got got away here. I don't know whether anybody's growing it here. Um, but you can use angle onion. I've never seen it. Mm. My friends in, in England make um, pesto with with the wild garlic. Yeah, yeah. it's, a, it's a lovely plant. I've seen mm. woods of it in in. Uh, France, and it has the starry flowers. It doesn't have the little snowdroppy like oh, yeah, flowers yeah. that the, the uh, onion weed or angle onion has. Um, so it gets a sort of more like a little head like some of the ornamental oh, alliums yeah, get, yeah. but it gets a broad leaf. It doesn't look like an allium. Um, and uh, so it's something quite different. But we were having a very posh lunch in New Zealand at a winery uh, while we were over there. And on top of the main course, and I can't even remember what the main course was because I was so stunned by the fact that they'd used uh, onion weed flowers on the top of it, and they tasted fantastic. So go out and eat your way through the bloody thing. <laughs> when, when I first moved to Victoria, I, I'm, I'm a Tasmanian boy, and I had never come across onion weed in my life. It's, mm. it's not in Tasmania. And I, was, I, I um, worked at Chandler's Nursery in the basin, so some of our old gardeners out there may still remember that one. Um, and, and on the property there was a big patch of onion weed, and I dutifully picked it Sunday afternoon for the girls in the office on Monday morning for a bunch of flowers and... They weren't at all appreciative. Oh, dearie me. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. Some people just... I'm just being a little chivalrous. And so, so Stephen, how, how, what was the source? How did they make it? Do you, did you ask? The... The onion weed. They just picked the flowers and used them as a garnish oh, on top. Use them as a garnish. Yeah, but you can eat... Uh, anything that's an allium is edible. Mm. Um, 
Uh, some aren't worth it because if you're going to go out and pay $16 each for an allium gigantium bulb, you're not going to eat it. Um, but all alliums are edible. Um, you could use your um, onion weed as a sort of a chive-like uh, alternative. Mm. Uh, you could throw the bulbs into stews and, and, and other slow-cooked things. And you can certainly use the flowers on, on as garnish. And it has a slightly oniony flavour, but because it's got nectar in the flowers, it's slightly sweet. And so they're actually quite nice, the, the flowers. And, of course, if you're eating the flowers, the plant's not going to seed. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the longer you cook an onion, the mm. sweeter it becomes. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting. That, yeah. That... So, yeah, so, um, yes, if you've got a garden full of onion weed, the least you could do is eat your way through it. Um, so there you go. So it's edible and you could forage it if you wish to do so. And foraging does seem such a sensible thing to do. Well, it is if it's something that, you know, and it's quite tasty, so I have no problems using it, but I'm watching it slowly creep towards my garden down the nature strips and things around me mm. and thinking, oh, no, you know, is it inevitable I'm going to end up with bloody onion weed in my garden? Because it's quite close by. It's only about four houses down at the moment. I don't um, find – I've got onion weed all around my, my streets, but I yeah. don't find it difficult to – Look, it's not that hard to dig out and stuff as long as you don't let it go to seed and end up with that sort of seed bank in there all the time re-germinating. So if you keep on top of it, it's it's not that hard to deal with. So so when you're getting rid of onion weed, I I really haven't had that much experience with it in in my gardens. Um, Is it one you can safely dig up and pop in the compost bin? No, no, it'll regrow again in the compost bin. If I ever end up with any in my garden, and I have had a couple of small outbreaks over the years, I dig it up and put it into my septic system. It goes down there, out of the way. The where worm I food. Yeah, as worm food. But you could put it in a big black plastic bag and leave it out in the sun to bake. Does uh, it still have all those little bulbs? Oh, yeah. So, so like the oxalises and things, it still has all those oh, yeah. little bulbs. And oh, so you, you have to get soil and oil and... You've got to sort of dig it out, yes. And, uh, yeah, so you, you need to kill the plant you can, before you, you could compost it. You can it. put the top of the – if you get it before it's in flower, you can put the top of the plant in Yeah, the you compost, just don't want to put the bulbs in your But compost. you wouldn't put the bulbs in. Mm. But I, I've got a black bin that I just put them in and leave them there for nine months and then tip it out into the compost. Mm. Yeah. Yes, as long as you're persistent with those things, you can get on top of them. I have to say I'd probably rather have onion weed than some other things like sorrel. The sorrel is fairly easy to get rid of. Sorrel is, is there because your soil is quite acid. A little bit of, once again, that good old limestone will, mm. will knock your soil fairly quickly. Not that good for your rhododendrons. No, it's not good for your <laughs> rhododendrons. <laughs> yeah, I like my soil to stay a bit acidy, so yes, I don't really want an infestation of sorrel, and I know that's not far from me either. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> this is the 3CR Garden Program. I'm Virginia Hayward, and with me is Peter Harris and Stephen Ryan. If you'd like to give us a ring, ring in on 94190155. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, please ring in. So please give me a plant. Mm. All right. All right, we'll start from one end. Um, here we have a rather cute little high Andean alpine. So probably not for everybody. Um, it's a thing called Aricia, Aricia kikinia. And Aricia is a genus in the same family as the digitaluses and the penstemons. Uh, and it makes a little uh, sort of mound of heavily serrated dark green leaves and then sends up these quite tall spikes compared to the plant with these rather beautiful red bells that hang down. Um, if you wanted to grow a Rissia, oh, and by the way, all my pictures I think are up on our social media. I sent them all to Liz 
yesterday. So uh, have I a look at our Facebook page. Yeah, have a look at our Facebook page. Um, uh, Aricia, if you were going to try and grow it around suburban Melbourne, it would probably be strictly a pot plant. You'd grow it in a pot in a semi-shaded spot. Um, it flowers for ages, so once you've got a good plant of it, it will have its little red bells on it for a long, long time. Keep it moist, keep it cool, uh, but give it reasonably high light levels, otherwise it'll grow a bit wane and, and miserable. Um, and it's just one of those obscure genera. There's one or two species that come from New Zealand, but they're all white flowering ones. I think Akinia is the only scarlet flowered Arisia. I think most of the others are pale coloured ones. Could you spell Arisia for us? It's O U R I S I A. Just so our in case Arisia. if somebody wants to look it up. <laughs> yes, they can. And uh, I think they're charming things. And uh, Do you grow it in your garden? I don't grow it in my garden. I just grow it as a potted plant even at, at the nursery because if you get a, a dry spell and you're not on top of it, it will collapse and die almost overnight. So it's a so, challenging plant. So it needs water. It does need water, but it doesn't want to be wet and soggy either. So, so it'd be very it, happy in New Zealand. Oh, probably take off across their Alps if they let it loose there because they've got their own species. And, and they've got all the pumice, so it's yeah. like it's nice, well-drained. Yeah, so, so yeah, so Arisia is a, a very pretty southern hemisphere genus, mainly between New Zealand and South America, and I think most of the species are South American. Um, and this is the only one that I've had a go at. It's supposed to be one of the easiest of the genus to grow. Some of the high alpine ones from New Zealand are almost impossible to keep. Uh, and this one's a bit of a challenge, but it's it's pretty enough to make a little bit of effort to try and grow. So there you go, Arisia kikinia. And of course, people know kikinia means red. So there you go. And it's Arisia. Yeah, Arisia. Arisia. Yeah, so that's a lovely plant. And something completely different, uh, but another sort of perennially thing, uh, is a North American prairie plant uh, called Amsonia, um, Amsonia hybrictii, and they call them blue stars. And they have starry-like flowers, and they're the palest, almost white blue. And in some lights they look really white, in other lights they look much bluer. Um, flowers in early summer. Uh, grows to about nearly a metre tall in the ground. It's a very hardy, easy-to-grow perennial. It has quite nice, fine foliage on it. And unlike most perennials, when when Amsonias are dying down in the autumn, they actually go autumn colour. So they go bright yellows and apricots and oranges and things before the plant dies down. So you get a secondary... That would be lovely. Yeah, well, most perennials just sort of fall apart in a big heap and they just sort of collapse and there's nothing terribly exciting about them. But the Amsonias do colour nicely before they die down. So very worthwhile group. They get a quite heavy woody sort of um, uh, clump of roots at ground level. Um, They don't run. They just make just ever slightly expanding clumps. Um, they're reasonably easy to, to raise from seed. And I've also fi- found that they strike quite well from cuttings. So you can take early summer cuttings from them and you can have plants ready for sale the following year. So by early summer cuttings, we're talking well, you'd need a soft wood semi-hard, yeah. soft semi-hardwood yeah. cutting. Yep. yep, and they'll strike and uh, you can get more plants going that way. I wouldn't actually try and lift and divide it because it's a bugger of a thing to get out and you'll probably destroy most of it trying to divide it because it has got this sort of woody root base to it. So it's probably better to grow them from cuttings or seed anyway. Uh, and Amsonia is one of those sort of... Small, it's not a big genus. I think there's only a handful of species in the genus. I think they're all North American. Um... You really they're, see them grown here. They're very popular mm. in England. You see them, all the um, the fancy fancy garden designers use Amsonia yeah. a yeah. lot. Yeah. And 
they're much more aware of late autumn colour and what happens in winter than we tend to be because we've got winter flowers and yeah. they don't. Yeah, we're spoiled, yeah. basically. So they will be going in part, I'm sure, for that autumn colour when they're oh, yeah. dying down. Yeah, I, I think they're lovely and I do like that sort of icy blueness of the flowers. Some have got a little more blue than others, but the flowers of them all seem to be much of a muchness. It's uh, The different species tend to have just mainly different shaped leaves. So some of them are broader, some of them are narrower. Um, uh, and so it's just about the foliage. They all seem to grow to about that metre height. So there's not a, a huge diversity in the genus, but they're a very good workhorse in a perennial border that you just don't see used here enough and they seem to be pretty easy going so there's no real reason why we shouldn't be able to grow them so have you grown them in your garden yeah yeah they they cope in my garden quite well um i have to say i tried them in my blue and yellow border but they're so pale they looked white against everything else so didn't sort of work from the perspective of the color combination i was trying to get um but they look pretty when they're dying down in the autumn and i've left them in the blue border because they've grown well so, but yeah, I find it quite an easy plant um, and uh, yeah, good value. You mm. know? So it might not be one of those plants that leaps out at people, um, but um, it gives you that sort of ongoing value. It flowers for a long time. Then you've got the autumn foliage. It seems to collapse and die down reasonably quickly and, and without too much drama. Uh, Which so, is something I like. I like things to, to finish quickly. Yeah. Does, Unlike the pineapple lily, which is just... Oh, Shocking! Thing. Oh come on! <laughs> so is it a repeat flower, or it no, flowers down no. the stem, or you can give it a quick, you can give it, give it a quick prune as you? Uh, no, it, it doesn't seem to repeat flower. You get your one crop of flowers, but they last for quite a long time. So, so to make a good cut flower as well, I think it probably would. I haven't tried it, but I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. So there you go. So there's two of my little babies. Um, have we had anybody trying to ring in yet? No, people. It's very ever since we announced the. Um, the text line, we have had people texting in rather than ringing in. Well, I think that's laziness on behalf of our listeners. Um, a lot of people are frightened to talk. They don't want to talk on air. Yeah. And it's like, come on, guys, if we've got to do it, you've got to do it too. Yeah, well, come exactly. on. Let come me on. give out that number again, 94190155. And I will mention the text line. <laughs> you almost don't have to, apparently. <laughs> no, it's true. 0488809855. And if you want to email us, and this is particularly for a lot of people listen to our podcast, it's yeah. quite interesting. We've got we've got people in in um, Minnesota, in out of Birmingham, outside Birmingham, in London. And, of course, we've got people from up north here. There's well, we have a regular ringerina that comes from Sussex. No, 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 that she's from the Midlands. Oh, is she from the Midlands? Mm. I thought she was from Sussex. Mm. I don't know why I got that from in From the head. Midlands. But anyway, they can contact us, gardening at 3cr.org.au, which we picked up by next week's show. And so this is the 3CR Garden Show, and we think you should ring us, yes. 94190155. We're feeling lonely. Give us a ring. Oh, dear. I think we should talk about some of Peter's flowers so, here. So, it, so it's my turn? Yeah, okay, Steve, turn. Stephen and I have brought in some trays of show and tell, so we'll keep going until we get some phone calls. So I, I brought in, there's a tray of fuchsias sitting in front of me, and, and fuchsias are um, one of my passions once again. They're basically South American, Argentina, Chilean um, originality. However, there is a little prostrate one 
and several species um, from New Zealand. I think Australia wants to claim procumbens, but it isn't. It's a New Zealand one. Um, I think there's about 110 yeah. species. Quite probably. Of, of which there are myriads I could, of I could check. Oh, Stephen. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm pretty sure there's about 110 species. Um, and there are myriads of hybrids within the species. So we, we're just going to talk about the pretty double-flowered, single-flowered hybrids that people are used to. And, and while we, were, we touched on weather earlier on this morning, I'm, I'm going to hold up to Stephen. Oh, should, we'll, we'll pass around. Um, the, the same flower, the same plants with two different, excuse me, there, Virginia, two different coloured flowers come with exactly the same plant. Now, Stephen's holding, a, would, it's a blue, one's a blue and a white, and the other colour would be, how would you describe that colour? I'd, I'd call it's that a, more a magentary a, a sort of pusey colour, pusey pink. And, and so, so what's happening here is we've had a lot of cloudy weather, so the little fuchsias have um, not developing their true colour in, in the lower intensity sunlight so we've had a couple of warm days and high intensity sunlight which the bluer has showed up on the flowers so, so this the paler pinkier version is from the cool weather it's from the cloudy weather the cloudy uh, weather and the and the and the bluey color is in fact more the proper color of the future Cor- correct and then virginia's got got once again a couple of different flowers from exactly the same plant and one is almost a purple red virginia one is so much deeper in colour than the other, that mm. it actually looks like it could be two different plants. They, they look like, and that's why I've kind of brought them in to show people yeah. that, you know, it's, and, and I'm sure just out, out in the gardens it's not just fuchsias that are doing it this year because we've had mm. such a cold season. Um, it, the light intensity has, has seemed to um, changed certain flowering yeah. colours and... Um, so, so my little fuchsias, we, we run, we've run them up to standards and we're doing them in baskets and we're doing them up totem poles and all sorts of fun things that people come along and have a look at in the exhibition um, uh, only because it, you don't realise. They, they come in variegated leaves, they come in green leaves, they come in long, thin leaves, they come in little round spathlet leaves. They, there are all sorts of leaf forms, all sorts of foliage shape. And colour, sorry, leaves and foliage, same thing, yeah. um, variegated. Um, and they, they come in big, tall ones and they come in little hanging basket ones and they come in ground cover ones. Yeah. So um, well, I was, When I was variety. in New Zealand, I saw Fuchsia X Corticata, which is another New Zealand species, and it can grow to 50 feet tall. 50 feet? Yeah. What sort of flower do they have, Steve? Tiny, tiny <laughs> little pink things, but they often flower on the old wood. So you'll have these trunks that come out. So it's a bit like the Circus uh, uh the Judas tree that flowers on the older wood. <coughs> so this fuchsia flowers on its older wood, um, and it has, well, it's called ex corticata, meaning that it, it sheds, uh, and it has this flaky, amazing, coppery-coloured bark on the trunks, and the trunks are sort of sinuous and what have you and you're walking through the forest and you see these coppery coloured sinuous trunks with this amazing sort of papery bark which apparently I have been told the early settlers in New Zealand used to use the bark to make a rather hot burning um alternative to tobacco when they couldn't get tobacco for their cigarettes they'd roll fuchsia bark um it sounds pretty gross to me. I wonder what it tastes like. Well, I've never tried, um, but yes, apparently it was used that way. And of course, so, the fuchsia berries. So while we're on the smoking of the bark, mm. um, the, the, 
the berries on fuchsias are edible as well, which yeah. I wasn't aware of until just recently. Now, the flavour is – so when we're talking berries, we're not talking the green berries after the flowers. No. We're talking the ripe berries. Yes, so they so could they be a red ripen. right through to a purple. And I, I have tasted one many years ago, one being a naughty child, I'm guessing. Um, and to me, it was a sweet um, – just a sweet, describe that flavour, a sweet, maybe a tiny lean on the side of a fig, but just a sweet flavour. Yeah, they make um, good jams. They, they make, good make jams, exactly. Yeah. Yes, you can use fuchsias in lots of different ways. And certainly the big tree fuchsia was a, it was such a popular fruit with the New Zealand Maori that Maoris tended to have their own vocabulary <laughs> about plant names. So there was uh, nearly every plant in New Zealand has got its own Maori name. Mm. The tree fuchsia, in fact, has a Maori name, and I can't remember what it is, but it starts with a K. Um, but they've got a separate name for the fruit, so the, and it's possibly the only example in in their language where they actually give the fruit its own specific name. That's how important it was to them as a fruit. So there you go. So. Don't ignore your fuchsias as a possible um, food source as well. As a food source. And don't be afraid to prune them. Fuchsias, all fuchsias respond very well to a prune and, and they enjoy being Do Do you potted. know if the 50-foot New Zealand fuchsia is in this country? It's in my nursery. Is it? Yeah. Excellent. Yes, I was just potting up some tube stock of it the other day because I had a uh, a client who, if you're out there, they'll be ready in another week or two. Um uh, who wanted one of the tree fuchsias. I grew it years ago and they grew so damn fast that I ended up having to compost them because they just rooted straight through the bottoms of the pots, became these great big things in small pots uh, and were completely unmanageable. So I stopped propagating it because I wasn't selling enough. Um, and, yeah, somebody asked me recently and I've got access to a big plant growing in one of the old gardens up on Mount Macedon. So I thought, oh, I'll just go and get some more fuchsia X quarter cuttings, which I've done. And well, it's, it's probably a good idea to get it in a few places. Or um, yeah, well, it's, if, it's, uh, if it's coming from one place in Macedon, it's the only place I know of it growing. I mean, there may be other people that have got it around Australia somewhere. It does do better in the hills where it's cooler and damper, but I don't see any reason why you couldn't grow it in suburban Melbourne as long as you're prepared to plant a fuchsia that might grow to fifty feet. So, so does it grow go a little bit? Um, you, you know how fuchsias tend to be semi deciduous over yeah. winter. Um, does it? Does yeah, it's it more or less sleep? deciduous. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, in frosty parts of New Zealand, actually, the frost tends to take its foliage off so you see bare ones in, in amongst the forest plants where the, the cold has taken the leaves off. Um, so, yeah, I'd call it semi to fully deciduous, uh, although I would imagine in suburban Melbourne if you grew one, it probably wouldn't be cold enough to shed all its leaves in the winter, so it'll probably hold a fair few. But, but it wouldn't stop it flowering. It no. doesn't need the cold to flower. No, no. No, I do love the decumbents, yeah. the, the um, fuchsia decumbents, which I grow at my place, but I find it very difficult to grow. Mm. Probably not this year because we've had so much rain. It's well, again, it's a moisture-loving thing. Mm. And most fuchsias are, although having said that, I saw one in Chile. We were driving along through the bloody Atacama Desert um, and there was this bush growing on the side of the road with little pink flowers on it. And eventually I couldn't bear it any longer, so I pulled over and went and had a look. And it was a fuchsia. In growing the, in the desert. And the Atacama Desert is the driest place on earth. Yeah, well, it wasn't right up in the north part of the Atacama, but anyhow, it was growing in really deserty conditions. Why haven't we got that fuchsia? I mean, it would be an absolutely ideal plant for gardens in this country. I can't remember what the name was, but I did find out. I worked it out. I went through the whole process. As far as I know, nobody's got it here. I've never heard of it in the country. But it was very showy. It was this massive pink, and the flowers were in heads that sat up on the tops of the bush. Mm. And mm. it was just beautiful, but they were 
tiny wee flowers but in big heads. And and it was a drought-tolerant fuchsia. But I love some of those species fuchsias that have got the, that are quite big bushes and have got really tiny. You know, there's the tiny the, the, pink they're one. They're charming in the, their own little way, aren't yeah. they? Absolutely. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're not quite so flouncy. But they're, they're, not, they're not as flamboyant, yeah. but they're pretty in their own simplicity. Yeah. And yeah. I find often in the garden the species are better than the overbred ones. You know, they, they can be. They can be. They're, d- they're more resistant to a whole now, bunch Peter, of things. Peter, you yeah. mentioned uh, you know that you're growing your fuchsias this year, and that you've got your begonias coming along. What you haven't mentioned, and we probably should, so people are aware. Have you decided on a date when uh, the Tuberous Begonia Festival will start? Look, we, we are already fielding questions online now about that, and we've decided that we're going to kick off the first weekend in February. Um, and because I'm doing, so it'll be every weekend in February and March, and because I'm doing Melbourne International, we have to have a, a late batch because we have to put a display in as well. So I'm kind of thinking this year that our advertising isn't going to say we're going to be open for the weekends in April, but somebody smiling upon me yeah. um, and a good stiff breeze my way and a bit, a bit more luck, um, I will be running into the weekends in April as well this year yeah. um, just because the numbers I'm needing to build up for Melbourne yeah. and the second display, which has to be timed perfectly for Melbourne. So we'll Melbourne, in, Melbourne International. In, for Melbourne International. Mythicus, yeah. Sorry, Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show. Yeah. So we'll be pulling that display out and putting that display in at homes to tart my, my display and my collection up. Um, and there'll be some plants there as well. Yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, it'll be a whole bunch of fun and something new to look at for me. So, this so year, you'll next be year. doing your own. I'll be running. I'll be running the Fuchsia and Begonia show from home, and we'll be doing with with help um, the, the site in town, town as well. Yes. Yeah. And and home is whereabouts? Homes in the Mass, the wonderful Masson Rangers, Rangers over in Ashbourne Road. So everybody in Ashbourne Road, sorry about the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, but look, the, count, the council are on board with us now, and the local tourist information centre is on board. And I think we got about four thousand people through last year. So. And so, it, I'm sorry, this year it was this year, wasn't it? It was this year still. Mm, yes, you've got year. three or four more yeah. weeks. Yeah. And so, if people want to find out about this after Christmas, how do they do so? How um, just just Google search the Tubus Begonia Garden. Tubus Begonias, Tubus Begonia Garden crops up everywhere, or you can phone me. And the phone number is 0400-313-703. And we'll take all phone calls. I may not get to you immediately because I have dirty hands. Whatever, I wash my hands, but I will return all phone calls. Give us the phone number again, please. 0400-313-703. And it'll always be Pete, so you'll always get me. And the address, could we give the address out? Is 691 Ashbourne Road, Ashbourne. It's well marked. It's got a whopping great big Tubus Begonia Garden sign there. Um, and when, when we're closer to the show, we put the, the council who given us the permits for the billboards down at the bottom of Ashbourne Road by the traffic lights there. Just follow them along the road for five and a half kilometres and we have one out the front of the property And for as people well. from the other sides of town? There's plenty. Look, there's plenty of car parking. There's plenty of tourist bus parking. And no, there's more than that, I was parking. going to say, where people who have never heard of Ashbourne. Ash, Ashbourne is a little hamlet 
just the other side of Wood End. Yeah. But, for, but also for, for the people over in the Yarra Valley, um, we do do the Yarra Valley Plant Show and we take, we're hoping to take that Melbourne National Flower and Garden Show display <laughs> up. Haven't spoken to Clive yet, so if you're listening, Clive, <laughs> I'm hitting you up for Marquee to put a begonia display in this year. <laughs> There's um, something well you didn't my know, side. Clive. There's there something, go. Clive. I didn't speak to you the other day. <laughs> Oh dear. So there, there's something I'm planning planning on talking to Clive and I about, and I just think it'd be fun because the it's with the price of fuel, it's a long way to travel. Um, so it'd be nice to pack the whole kit and caboodle up and and put a marquee up at the Yarrow Valley, so people can just come and have a look because they are they are truly the mockingbirds of the plant world, and they 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 look everything from a water lily through to a, a big dahlia, um, a chrysanthemum. They, they they mimic all sorts of things. So they are quite um, extraordinary. The extent, the range of begonias. And if you want to know more about them, you could go on to the Horticulturalist's YouTube channel and have a look at the video that Matthew and I did with Peter last year uh, with his begonias. If you want to know anything that you could ever possibly want to know about growing them, they're in that video. How so, long does that run for, Stephen? It's about 20 minutes or 25 minutes or something, uh, but it talks about raising them, staking them, watering them, feeding them, deadheading them. Um, I can't we, went, we went through everything. We troubleshot anything that could possibly yeah. go wrong right through. We did pests and diseases. We, we did everything, and Stephen and Matthew, bless their little hearts. They didn't eat the day before and they turned up onto the property and and after maybe three hours of filming, Matthew says, but I'm hungry. What time's lunch? <laughs> which which threw the kitchen into chaos, didn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, it did rather. But, yeah, I'm very pleased with that video and it's had um, enormous amounts of uh, viewers from all over the world um, because it really does cover practically everything you could ever want to know about how to deal with tuberous begonias. So it's in there if you want that information and probably wouldn't hurt people to look at that video before they come and visit you and buy some tuberous uh, ab- begonias. Absolutely, but we also made it fun and, and I think Stephen was saying earlier on that there's a lot of colours. If people just want to walk through the display, you you did a lot of colour through the display? Oh, yes, yes. We showed them lots of different begonia flowers, enough to whet their appetites, I'm sure. And, and of course, the other person who grows a lot of begonias is Craig from Gentiana Nursery, who's one of our other presenters yes on and he does show. a lot of the foliage and bedding type begonias so uh, he's got a huge range of them some amazing plants mm. so definitely worthwhile looking at but they're, they're almost different beasts don't you think peter Look, I, I, the reason i am doing cheerus begonias is because we can get them through the frost mm. we're going to minus seven out mm. where we are and and i was saying to Stephen this morning i i've lucked onto a collection of um species but but the woody ones which i'm of course going to have to put into the hot benches to get them over winter um but the difference between the wrecks the canes um they are totally different beasts yeah. where where the tuberous die down to a bulb the others are perennial rhizomaceous mm. and um shrubby yeah um, so they the begonia genus is pretty remarkable massive. it's massive. huge and they're finding new ones all the time i mean uh on social media i follow quite a few of these people who are putting up new species of things as they're described. Mm. And so 
almost weekly there seems to be another begonia found in in the Philippines or New Guinea or somewhere, uh, yet another species begonia. So I'm not even sure how many species are in that genus now, but there's got to be hundreds and hundreds of them. So there you go. Absolutely. Now, now, can I I digress for a little bit? We've been talking about how much rain and what an odd season Mm. we've had this year. And um, and I I bought in, so so we're looking at a peony rose here, um, a herbaceous peony, peony lactiflora a hybrid and um so so we we've we're fielding a lot of questions at home at the moment about why are the leaves on my peony going brown and they look like they're getting a bit waterlogged and wilting and we we spray with copper bay sprays at home and it's basically botrytis hitting the peonies and it's it's happened predominantly this year and it's right through the cut flower industry as well um because the season has been so cold so dark and so wet um, so all those people at home that have got the herbaceous peonies that may have a bit of wilt on the foliage or some black spots and lesions around the edges of the leaves, don't panic. <laughs> it's really not worth spraying if you've only got one or two plants. Um, what will happen, especially if they're dying from the top down, they tend to have a whole bunch of dormant buds around the eye, the main shoot of the plant, but up and down the stem as well, up for about the first six inches, what's that, 12, 15 centimetres. So if your plants are going to die back and caused by this botrytis, don't panic, they will reshoot fairly quickly and they'll, now the weather's dried out, they will be later going dormant, but they will still be fine. Yeah, yes, lots of stuff are getting all sorts of fungal issues at the moment. But anyhow, it is what it is. And the season's much later as well this year, not not because of any reason other than it's been so cold and so yeah. dark for so long. Exactly. I mean, I've, I've got apricots at home just breaking now. Mm. My polonia's just breaking now. Yeah, it's I mean, ridiculous. We're, we're <laughs> December. Yes, and it's been, been the first day that we've really had some heat is today. First, first few days, yeah. Anthony from Beaumaris, I have grown three little seedlings from supermarket kiwi fruit. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Will they will they fruit? No. <laughs> Probably no. not. Uh, the problem with them is because you need boy and girl ones, you could end up with three little girl ones or three little boy ones Well, you anyway. probably won't even end up with that. You'll probably end up with some less bred... Really, a mongrel-looking thing. Um, well, it won't be um, as good as the supermarket kiwi it, fruit because they've be been bred like. up for that sized fruit. Correct, so, correct. So even if you manage to get them to um, to flower and fruit, they'll probably be inferior. And as I said, they could all be female or all male. So when you buy kiwi fruit, they're vegetatively propagated. So your boy, your boy one comes in a blue pot, your girl one comes in a pink pot. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, it does. We, we see type like set, we're typesetting here. Yeah, well, um, male is the predominant. They're probably going to be male. Yeah, anyway. so, yeah, so there's probably not much point in growing them on other than for the fun of doing it uh, because, yeah, productive plants are unlikely to come. So in about eight years' time, seven or eight years' time, when your plants start to flower, check your flowers for sexes. So Mm. to tell if it's a girl flower, it'll have a little tiny unfertilised ovary at the base. Mm. So it'll be those little white petals with a few stamens and a lot of pollen. And then right at the base of that will be a little, which will be the ovary, Mm. a little tiny unfertilised Think of an egg, right, yeah. at the bottom of your your petals. And if it's a boy, it'll just be lots of puff and fluff and yes. ceremony and pretty. <laughs> that's, that's all we'll be. Yeah, well, um, we boys, we all try to be the, pretty. The problem you're then going to have is nobody is going to sell you one kiwi fruit. 
because it splits pairs. Mm. Everybody wants to sell you a boy and a girl. So mm. good luck with that one. I don't yeah. think there's going to be much of a No. A, Look, a if you're serious about having kiwi fruit, yes, go out and buy a well grown boy and girl. known boy and girl cultivar. The other issue you have with kiwi fruit too is that uh, there's certain cultivars that will pollinate certain female forms because they flower at the right times. Um, random kiwi fruit are unlikely to flower at the right time. So even if you end up with a boy and a girl, doesn't mean they're going to flower at the same time and pollinate. Uh, so your chances of actually getting fruit are oh, very slim. So, if if yeah. you can wait that long. Yeah, and they're going to be huge it's big small. vines, so they're going to take up a lot of space. Yeah, kiwi is not for the faint heart. No, kiwis. it certainly isn't. What would be the biggest you've seen as far as I adult? hate to think that I've uh, seen unpruned ones that have grown right to the top of a tree. I, I was but, going to say 20 meters, I've seen 15, yeah. 20 meter vines yeah. of kiwi fruits yeah. just left. Yeah, left know, there's only so much pavlova you can make. <laughs> the other only... thing, too, that you have to be very careful of with kiwi fruit is that if you have both of them, you label them properly because mm. if one dies... You have to put them away from each other. Yeah, <laughs> But also you have to know which one's which because if one dies, you have to replace a male with a male and a female with a female. You yes. can't... And the issue is that uh, for some reason or another... The females seem to be hardier because it almost always seems to be somebody's lost their male plant. Every time somebody's come in and asked about kiwi fruit, they've lost their male plant. I don't know why, but it just seems to be, I don't know whether it's just um, happenstance or whether the male ones aren't quite as strong or something. I don't know, but it nearly always seems to be the male plants that die. And anyhow, I think for, for the few kiwi fruits you use in a year, I'm not sure about the worth of it all they're, personally they're, they're too big for most home gardeners they're, they're but i do think big. the flower's lovely oh it's pretty have and some of the ornamental kiwi fruits are have beautiful. you had the perfume of them when they're pollinating it smells like dirty socks <laughs> i'm sorry guys that's that's kiwi fruit pollination what, 16 story. year old boys dirty socks in his room locked away for a while or just vaguely socky that <laughs> <laughs> that dirty sock smell. Yeah. That, that you've been hiking, you only have one pair of socks. Yeah. That, that dirty <laughs> sock smell. Okay. I have to say, though, the genus is not just about brown furry fruit. I mean, there's some really lovely ornamental kiwis out there, and I grow one called Polygamma Vera's Pride, which has huge big green leaves, and the bottom half of most of the leaves is pure white. It looks like somebody's gone around and dipped all the leaves in, in white paint. Uh, and each variegation is a different amount. Sometimes it'll just be the very tip of the leaf. Sometimes the leaf will be straight green. Uh, others you'll have a whole white leaf. Uh, and it's beautiful. And there's columnicta out there too. Isn't yeah, but that it? one's really hard to keep. Yeah, uh, it's a real weak. I've seen it for a long yeah, time. I've yeah, I've got a plant of it growing in the garden at the nursery and I occasionally propagate it. And it has pink tips to the leaves, which are really pretty. And there's another one called Tetramera, um, Tetramera subspecies Malacoides. And it has long, narrow leaves. And it also has the white tips to the leaves. And it's really pretty. And it has rather beautiful but small pink flowers. But and, really but they're, 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 it's not a, none of them have an even variegation, do no. they? It's very sporadic as yeah, to where yeah. it pops It's all over the place, place. Yeah, which yeah. sort of makes it fun because it's so unexpected. But so, you, can, you can get a whole greeny, ready branch without yeah. any variegation and then suddenly you'll get one leaf. You, yeah. it's, or, it's not like a privet where the whole thing is variegated. Or No, no. Um, and yeah. in fact, they don't tend to variegate when they're very small, most of them. Yeah. They take time to build variegation into the leaves. But anyhow, they're yeah, quite We have digressed. We have a call from Lee from Merrick's North. Ah, fantastic. Which I think is excellent. Good Hello, morning. Lee. 
Well, good morning, team. I good was, morning. As a listener, I was feeling a bit chastised about being late. <laughs> yeah, as you should. So the, the guilt has paid ringing. off, yes. <laughs> and I'm also ringing in, in defence of the Chinese gooseberry. Oh. I have a male and a female, as I did in my last house. I think they're a fine thing to grow. I've got them up on my, uh, over my veranda. The female's much more vigorous than my male, which mm. goes against the trend. Mm. I get good fruit. The male tends to flower a little bit earlier than the female, and I always think, oh, they're not going to make it. But somehow I get fruit, so the birds and the bees seem to know what they're doing. Yes, so that's, that, that's because the male needs his pollen to dry, so it can be picked up and moved by whoever wants to move it fairly easily. Um, and so as the minute the female pops out and her stigma gets all that nice sticky stuff, there's that dry pollen ready to pop on there and grow, grow down in and fertilise your fruits. Um, that's, we why weren't, we, that's why he's coming out a, a little bit earlier. That's exactly why he's coming out a little bit earlier. We, were, we, weren't, we weren't saying kiwi fruit are a bad thing. We were just saying they're not for the faint-hearted in those little tiny subdivision blocks you see nowadays. That's all oh, we're no. saying. I'm on, I'm on 12 and a half acres, sir. So. Yeah, no, well, I love <laughs> them. Lee, you've I got more than them. enough room. You could you actually have a kiwi fruit orchard. You could have, no, two, no, no, you could no, have no. two or three females there. <laughs> I'm too old, Stephen. They are a little bit hard work. They do grow vigorously and they do need to be cut back yep. um, or they take over. On the other hand, though, in the weather that we've been having down here, there's a certain amount of self-pruning goes on and large branches get broken off uh, and fall all over the place. Um which is what I've been experiencing the last few weeks. Yeah. So they've, you know, they've reduced themselves um, quite conveniently for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, it's just, they're so vigorous. They'll, they'll replace those broken new shoots pretty quickly. Yeah. Oh, yes, they do. They do. Um, one other ex- uh, remark I'd like to make. I've got kangaroo paws clumps that are getting quite big. But when they finish flowering, can I just break those up and replant them here and there? You can, although generally speaking, kangaroo paws are better divided when the weather's cool, and now we're starting to head towards some warmth. It's probably something I wouldn't want to do in summer. I'd probably want to divide them in late autumn, early winter, or late winter, early spring, when the ground's still slightly warm. Well, um, I, I meant that after the flowers are well done, yes. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, you can divide kangaroo paws. Um, you will have a certain attrition rate. Not all of it will take, um, but there's a good chance that you'll end up with quite a few of them. And anyhow, they're one of those plants that eventually strangle themselves if they've been in the ground too long. They don't. They start to go off after a while. So if you don't divide them, you're going to start having old clumps start to sort of die in the middle and you know become scruffier and scruffier. So uh, they need refurbishing or replacing on a semi-regular basis, really. Lee, my neighbour does hers every year. I mean, she has a lot, so she doesn't do the same ones every year. But she is every year she does, and she has got them everywhere now. She's oh. been very successful at just dividing them, digging them up and dividing them and putting them back in. Mm. The clumps look like they divide very readily. Mm. Yeah, yeah they, they're not hard to divide, but uh, you do need to get a reasonable piece of root with each division, and I wouldn't divide them right down to single crowns. Mm. I would divide them up into clumps, um, mm. and, uh, yeah, there's no reason why you shouldn't. Good. Do you cut the foliage back when you're I dividing? Would. I would prune the foliage back a bit so that it, there's less transplant shock. Okay, thank you. There's a plan. All right, fantastic. Good to hear Enjoy from you. Enjoy your day. Lee. It's lovely down here today. Thanks for phoning in. <laughs> Thanks, Bye. Lee. That's fantastic. Bye. Bye. Oh, I pressed every wrong button then. <laughs> well, you had to do something wrong this morning, I did, didn't Virginia. I? Yes. yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, now, um, we've had a request. Can anyone uh, 
tell one of our listeners where to buy non-grafted passion fruit vines. I you do see them around. They 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 yeah. are pretty. They're readily available these days. Yep. I because I always look for the non-grafted. And just yeah. just run your eye down the stem, and there won't be a, a second stem there or yeah. a graft scar. It's like. But also, um, usually they're labelled because they're cheaper. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So yep. usually they're labelled yeah. non-grafted. And now would yep. be a good time to be looking around for a young passion fruit. I would have thought. Absolutely. Now that the weather's now starting warm. to warm up. Yeah. Yeah. Would be a good time. To to sort of get one. I would have thought the larger garden centres and things should have them by now. They're, they're pretty much everywhere. Do they take any soil? Well, they don't like wet feet. And they don't like alkaline soil. So other, They don't al- like alkaline. They don't no. like alkaline soil. And why on earth do they not do well at my place? Too exposed and yeah. wet maybe. feet. No, wet I feet. don't have wet feet. I'm no. on top of the hill. But I do have um, that, I've got that red soil. Mm. Mm. Could that look, red there could clay. be a little bit of fusarian or something because they're fairly susceptible to just the, those higher those higher clay contented soils. Um, passion fruit struggle with a little bit. Mm. Those mountain soils yeah. they like they like a sandy loamy. Yes, that's soil. I wondered that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, they do really well down through the sand belt. So if yes. you're in Cranbourne, Oakley, all over through that area, passion fruits do really well. So yes, there you go. And Susie's texted in saying, I didn't make it to Jack Semler's garden, which is open again today with Open Gardens Australia, uh, Open Gardens Victoria. If anyone is looking for something to do, there's a lovely garden open today in Frankston. And Susie wants to know if anyone, any of the listeners went to see Jack's garden and could they ring in and tell, tell us about it. Oh, and we've got another text. Are yellow and red kiwi plants available in Australia? I don't know. I've heard that the kiwi berry, the smaller the, one, is def- now available. That is red, that's readily yeah. available. Yeah, but I'm won't. not sure about the yellow-fleshed uh, kiwi. Look, I've, I've said there are fruit definitely available, yeah. but I'm not sure about the plants yeah, at this I point. Have, yeah, and, the, and the and New Zealanders might be hanging on to them for grim they, death and I, not letting us have them. I have a feeling there was, there was something going on there um, um, legally with that one. Um, and while you're on that little aguta or that little kiwi berry, you don't need two of that one mm. for, um, for, for the home gardeners out there. You only need one of those. So. And it's another one that's very pretty. It's it's a lovely little thing. It's not mm. nearly as robust as the um, straight um, Actinidia chinensis. Uh, chinensis. Yes, chinensis. Um, yes. Um, so yeah, yeah. That that little kiwi berry is a lovely little thing. This is the three CR Garden Show. My name is Virginia Haywood, and with me are Peter Harris and Stephen Ryan. If you'd like to ring us, you can ring us on nine four one nine o one double five, or you can send us a text on o four double eight. 809-855 or you can email us on gardening at 3cr.org.au and the phone line is 94190155. Yes, so please do ring us in it whilst was... we're still here. We've got, it's only a little after half past eight so we've still got the best part of three quarters of an hour to go so we'd love to hear from people. And it was very nice of Lee to ring in. Yes, it was. And so the rest of you should feel guilty now and ring in as well. (laughs) (laughs) We'll throw a guilt trip on everybody. Why not indeed? If we can get up at at some ungodly hour of the morning. so To get here, indeed. Now, that is a very lovely flower that you have there, Pete. Okay, so we're back to the show and tell. Mm. Um, Blatilla striata, the Chinese ground orchid. Okay, so um, it's... uh, what. That be forty centimeters. Yeah, around about yeah, 40, forty centimeters, centimeters. tall. It's 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 a rhizome orchid. Um, it, it 
it is happy in the sun or the shade. I have seen it wedged in between a paling <clears throat> fence and a concrete path with only about mm. six inches of garden bed. I've also seen it growing in ferneries, so 90% shade. Um, it's it's a winter dormant one. It It is... It, it, it's one of those perennials that actually has the most gorgeous autumn butter yellow foliage mm. before it goes to sleep. Um, it doesn't care about frost. It doesn't care about drought. It doesn't care about wet feet. There's really not much that it does worry about. And why did I grab it? I grabbed it because I thought it's one of those times of the year I'm going to be looking for something to yak about this morning if nobody rings in. <laughs> um, so I thought this is just a little pretty thing that um, is an easy-to-grow orchid for those people out there that would like to have a go at orchids but have shied away because of the degree of difficulty that are normally associated mm. with orchids. And um, this is absolutely it, one you can slip into the garden, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yep. Mm. It's, 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 it, it does make a mat and it is easy to divide as soon as it goes dormant. Um, it also lasts as a cut flower. Um, it's, what else can I tell people about it, It Stephen? does come in white. <laughs> Oh, yes, it comes in a, in a blush white, which yeah. is much harder to get and it isn't quite as vigorous. And I as have seen chapter. a variegated leafed one. Yeah, there, is, there is one with a fine variegation yeah. around the edge. Yeah. Um, they're, all, they're all the blotillas of summer flowering. Um, I'm running out of things to say about blotilla. Please, Steve, well, help it's, me. <laughs> well, it's pretty. Uh, and, um, I mean, people do think of orchids as being somehow aristocrats that are, are difficult to grow but the orchid family is the biggest plant family in the world so obviously they come from all over and so there's huge diversity in hardiness and needs and requirements throughout the whole group so you can't say an orchid is hard to grow uh, because it's a matter of which orchid you're talking but, about absolutely now now also while we're on orchids um they, they will all quite happily set seed pods but orchids are one of those things that there's no point trying to oh. germinate them from home because orchid seed is i'm not sure of my total facts here how many other um, plants in the plant world have a symbiotic relationship with a fungus to germinate their mm. seed. I think orchids are one about, of the few. A, a, a few. That's a good way of putting yeah. it. Um, so, so there is no point sowing any orchid seed at home and expecting it to come up because it'll never germinate. They do it in tissue um, in tissue culture in the mics in the labs these days. We have somebody from Croydon, Lorraine from Croydon. Morning, Lorraine. Is Ringing in on fuchsias. Good morning, Lorraine. Hello there, Virginia. Um, I just potted out into the garden to have a look at the name of my fuchsia I got from Craig. It's one of the very tiny leaf, tiny flowered ones. And he said it grows into a bush that's very good for little birds uh, trying to escape the um, marauding, what are they called? Um, Predator, yeah. Predators, the, big, the bigger birds, the yeah. wattles and the yes, and the crows curl, and the ravens and the, and the currawongs and all those other larger yeah. predatory I've, birds. I've got um, currawongs galore, both the, the wattle one and the, and the little one, and I've seen them take two young parrots in a day. Yeah, nest one raiders. One in the morning, yep. one in the evening, and apparently this mine is still um, not sending out branches everywhere, but apparently it grows quite big. It's fuchsia. Basilaris. Not familiar. I with don't it. know. Both that of them one. are looking 
quite vague. Craig's well, got us. Well, there's a lot there. of fuchsias. Craig's too. got us. Yeah, so <laughs> no idea, but uh, if it's a species fuchsia, a lot of them are quick growing. Quite bulky bushes. Um, most of them are very popular with the um, honey-eating birds, mm. certainly. So yeah. your spine bills and New Holland honey eaters, all that sort of thing, will love the fuchsias when they're in flower. Uh, yeah. So they not only would give them a habitat to disappear into, but they'll also give them a food source. Um, mm. and well, they're the tiniest, tiniest flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised. Most of the yeah, the species ones are often quite small, That's... but they're but still. I think it's really a good idea to try and provide some way for little birds to escape these mm. marauding birds which are very common here now yeah well i always make sure i've got lots of twiggy bushy things in my Previous. garden and mm. little birds can then disappear into those sort of habitats um yeah. and a lot of people plant trees and they plant ground covers but they don't always have that middle range of things uh that can in fact make the most important habitat for your little birds so yes they need yeah. the shrub shrubby yeah, things yep. yeah they do they and do. if it's prickly all the better because they can get down in amongst a berberus or uh some of those sort of twiggy prickly shrubs um and it does give them a great place to hide. It does. One other quick question um, I thought somebody might know. I have a ranunculus that I've grown for years. It has very pretty foliage and grows up to 45 centimetres high, but the flower is tiny little cream star, mm. and I don't like not knowing its name. <laughs> Uh, I Look, I wouldn't be sure. I'd have to see the plant to be certain of which one you've got. Uh, again, it's a big genus. There's a lot of different species in the ranunculus genus, um, some of which are easy, some of which are quite hard. Um, if there were a chance of you taking... I'll one day with Virginia. Yes, that's a good idea. Very okay. good idea. Uh, and then okay. we'll hopefully be able to ID it for you because, yes, it is nice to be able to put a name to things. Mm, I absolutely. like to know what I've got in the garden. Mm, me too. Thank you very okay. much, Lorraine. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And we next have a call from Bernard in Langmoran. Good morning, Bernard. <coughs> Hello. Bernard. Yes, good morning. Oh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, you are there. Good. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I just had you on the speakerphone. I was doing something else. All right, well, two, two questions, please. I have, I think, an Italian lavender, which I think is... Getting on for about eight, nine, ten years old. Wow. And it's showing patches of dying. Yeah. Should I take that out or should I just leave it? Because I, I like to leave it because it gives the bees a lot of honey. Yeah, well, leave it until after it finishes flowering. Uh, in the it's meantime, I'd get some cuttings yep. going because they're quite easy to strike from cuttings. Uh, but lavender is one of those things, even with heavy pruning every year, they have a finite life. Uh, you've got to be prepared to remove them every few years and start off fresh plants again. And, of course, with three damp, cool years, that would probably shorten the life of any self-respecting lavender anyway because they like that sort of dry, hill sort of country of southern France, Mediterranean. And Italy and places like that. Uh, so really damp seasons aren't in lavender's favour either. So, yes, it sounds to me like the plant's getting towards the end of its useful life. So you, you need to start the um, contingency plan in motion and start the next batch. So, so do you know how to propagate them? Uh, well, I can try. Okay. It has um, put a, little, a couple of little um, sh uh, seeds um, growths elsewhere. I don't like to dig them up because when I do, they usually die. Mm. 
Yeah, well, that might be self-sown ones that have yep. come up around yep. the garden, and so, some do that. So, so you can grow lavenders from either the old wood, so make, make a nice clean cut, maybe 15 centimetres long, and bury two-thirds of that older wood with a little bit of young wood attached to the top. It will take a little while, but it will definitely root. But you do need to have sandy soil for it, not waterlogged soil. No, that's what I've got, sandy soil. Beautiful. And how the other way to do your lavenders it? is to do them from soft-tip cuttings, and they strike very, very quickly in soft-tip cuttings in a good quality um, um, cutting mixture, seedling rate, seed raising mixture. Um, they don't need to have a little false greenhouse made over them once because because they are that Mediterranean type of plant. So they're used to the dry atmosphere, but also their leaves stop a lot of transpiration anyway. But they will strike within three weeks from those soft tip cuttings. But the harder wood, because you you seem to have an older plant there, that will take maybe five to six weeks to to strike. But the, the, okay, the quickest and easiest way for you to do it is your, your soft green cuttings. Take the flowers out, strip the bottom leaves off, but pull the leaves upwards so you don't tear the bark downward and um, make excess surfaces because it can't root out of everywhere. It'll just need one one little wound for it to root out of. So if you pinch your leaves off and rip them upwards, leave 20 leaves on the top, that's all it needs. Okay. Um, also, do I need to water it this time of the year? The, what, your existing plant? Yeah. No. Uh, lavender will survive all summer without any water whatsoever. Uh, oh, okay. That's good, uh, yeah. If it's a well-established plant. I mean, that, that's what they do in the wild in, in, in lots of parts of the Mediterranean. So watering lavender will just shorten its life. Okay, thank you. And also the second question is I've got a, which I've espaliered, a um, apricot. Um, unfortunately, it's about years old I suppose it gets the fruit but it drops nearly all of them Generally when your orchard is shedding fruit, it's shedding fruit for a reason and the reason generally is because it's too dry Um, So, Which seems unlikely but It does seem unlikely but you'd be amazed how many times people have told me they've watered their plant and down the area that this, this call is calling from, um, it, it, tell, it tells me that that would be the only reason. Are, are they dropping as they're growing or are they drop, dropping just after flowering? They're about um, oh, a nut size, a, a I what suppose. Size? Um, what would I call that? A walnut. Um, it, it just drops them all. I've had about 15, 16, 20, and I'm now left with about two or three. It's not some little critter at night paying you a visit and knocking them uh, off, is I, it? I notice a lot of the um, leaves have got little holes in them, so I guess that's um, a very small caterpillar, but I don't really know. Shot holes in leaves could be yeah, earwigs. Yeah, that's it, yeah. The shot holes, yeah. Yeah, it could, could be earwigs. It could, it could be somebody paying you a visit at night because it's odd. <laughs> it, as Virginia said... It would be odd for it to be bone dry, dry. so it would be shedding its fruit first to, to save itself. Yeah, but well, Bernard, I'm on sandy soil and I do water it, but... Um, it might uh, be worth um, checking your soil, Bernard, actually having a look, you know, getting your fingers deep into the soil and seeing if, if it is does seem to be dry. Yeah, somebody mentioned to me, I think it was on your show as well, uh, use boron, is that right? Boron. 
Yeah. Look, some of the trace elements are necessary for plants, fruit setting and so forth, but normally it's potash that uh, is the element that's recommended for um, to help fruit set. So um, you could try some potash, but it's not going to help you this year. Potash no, no. takes a long time to go down into the ground and, and do its job. In a sandy soil, you could well be sort of deficient in trace elements, so it could even be worthwhile getting a... A packet of trace elements from the hardware store or wherever uh, and start giving them a bit of a, a dose of trace elements as well. Yeah, I'll try that anyway. Yeah, all right. All right. Thank you very much indeed. Well, best of Pleasure. luck. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And we now have a call from Mara in Bacchus Marsh. Good morning, Mara. Oh, hello. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Uh, I have a... Um, um, what I think might be a, a pollination issue. I've got two fabulous plum trees, but one of them has fantastic fruit and the other has almost none. They mm. flower at very different times yeah. and I suppose one of them gets pollinated from across the fence somewhere and the other one um, must miss out. So I don't know what to do. Well, there's not a lot you can do unless you know which plum it is. Uh, yes, well, I've got that in the garage. It would take me a bit of time to find out. Yeah, well, when you find out which plum it is, then yep. I would ring one of the large um, uh, fruit tree suppliers, tell them which plum you've got that's not fruiting properly, uh, and yep. they will give you the name of a cross-pollinating variety that you will need to plant to get that plum to set fruit. Okay. So that's the way I'd go. But you do need to know what plum it is to start with. If, yep. you, if you've if you lost the name and you can't find it, then you're in serious trouble. No, uh, I've got it in the garage. All right, somewhere. well, find that name. I would even, I don't know, I'd even be prepared to ring Fleming's or JFT or one of the big wholesalers and say you've got a, a such and such plum. They have their charts that they work from and they know which ones are cross-pollinators <laughs> for group A, group B, groups, group C or whatever. And so they will yep. give you a, a, a possibly even a selection of names of varieties that should in fact pollinate that plum. They will also have a list of people that they have supplied product to in yeah. your area. So you won't have to go for miles and miles and miles to find another one because they're sending stock out all the time. Oh, thank you very much indeed. That's a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. And Jill from Malvern East has rung us. Good morning, Jill. Oh. Oops, wrong one. Let me have another go at that. Line nine has Jill from Malvern East. Hi, Jill. Hello. Um, I've just planted a, a couple of weeks ago a Gloriosa Rothschildiana, which is an African lily. Yeah. And I planted it uh, in the under the archway uh, facing east, but it gets north sun as well. Do you think that's a good spot for us? Should be fine in Malvern. It's it coming out of that South African environment. I've seen them in 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 Zimbabwe. There, they they take the hot sun. Um, has it come up yet? No, it hasn't. It's only been in two weeks. Yep, yep, yep. Is the direction for it to plant at the end of November, beginning of December? So I did it, you know, 
that's, ten days ago. Yeah, that's perfect. That'll be flowering in about February for you. Put a little bit of support in because they do need something to grapple onto because they just have the little curly bits out the very end of their yeah. leaves. That's the, the the vine itself won't climb onto anything, but it just needs something to adhere to so the wind or the dog well, doesn't knock it off. It's, it's on it's on my arch. I've got an arch, and that's that's where I plant the sweet peas usually. But I thought I'd have something different this mm-hmm. summer. Yeah, why and not? Indeed? Why not? I also put um, another plant next to it. You know, it grew separately from it, and that's the uh, oh, oh, it's a little climbing thing that's from Mexico. That's very light, so I thought, oh well, they'll go together, and uh, they'll climb up the wire. Mm-hmm. And don't don't be afraid to pick your gloriosas when they flower and take them inside. The flower individual flowers last for weeks inside for you. Do they? Oh, yeah. that's that's fascinating. And okay, that, well, I'm glad it's it's an innovation for me, and I bought it by post from a nursery uh, in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Came by post, you know, with the three long sort of softened corms in. That's that's the one. Corn? That's them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a bulb, really. Mm, yeah. Yes. It, it is a bulb. It's got a skin on it. Yep. Yes, it's got a skin on it. Yeah. Well, best of luck with that, Jill, because they are very, very beautiful. Tuba. It's a tuba. A isn't tuba. It? Yes. Yes, it's it a tuba. Yeah. Well, my garden theme is pink and magenta and white, so it'll fit in exactly correctly with my garden colour scheme. It'll well fit in done. beautifully. Good. Excellent, Enjoy Jill. it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Yes, the Gloriosa is absolutely wonderful. In fact, Lee grows beautiful Gloriosas in her garden. Yes, I find them, our first I don't think they like Macedon. We seem to be a bit cold up there for Gloriosas. I, I tried this, a couple of times, but I gave up on them. I had this epiphany. I was going to do them for cut flowers in one of the poly houses at one point, and they went further and further and further <laughs> and further down. So yeah. by the time, <laughs> over the generations... <clears throat> Excuse me. By the time they actually came up to the surface, because they'd gone down about forty centimetres, mm. the season was too late, and frost hit them. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. Mm. Now we've had an, um, another text wanting to know: Are there winter and are there winter and summer flowering lavenders? Well, there's lavenders that flower at different periods of the year. Uh, I'm not sure I'd say there's specifically winter Winter. ones, but there's sort of ones that sort of flower earlier in the season. There's some that flower later in the summer. Uh, So there's there's a range of different species, some of which are becoming quite weedy here, actually. Uh, Lavendula stocus. Uh, which is the Italian lavender. Which is the Italian lavender has taken off into the uh, into the wilds a little bit. Um, so you do have to be careful which ones you're planting. And the, the Italian lavenders are the ones with the sort of bunny ears and the top of the flower head, uh, and they can become quite weedy. I think it's a good idea not to plant Italian lavender. Yeah. So, um, but yes, there's certainly fl- uh, different lavenders that flower at different times. Having said that, there's only a few lavenders that you can use for lavender oils and, and other lavender products. Some of the lavenders um, are not useful for those sorts That's of things. That's the angustifolia, yeah, yes, isn't the it, that you need for the... Yeah. But then if you're just growing them because you like lavenders... Well, it doesn't matter so mm. much. I, I think pretty much potted plants in colour are available 12 months of the year now yeah. anyway. So what they, how they perform in the garden Is may not question. be the same, mm. the same yeah. time next year because they've been timed to flower yeah. for the 12 months. So yeah. there's something pretty there in the garden centres 
12 months of the year, but they may not necessarily look great in the middle of winter outside. Can I say something <clears throat> derogatory? Excuse Can't me. stand lavender. Oh, I love it in the garden. Oh, oh, I love it. I love that smell. Oh. It's like... I'm, I'm, no, can't stand it. It's grey, it's it dry looking. Look at where it comes from. Yeah, well, I know exactly where it comes from, well, but that's the whole point. No, I mean, but I Australia think... does dry and grey really well. We don't need lavender to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm batting for the lavender no, today. Yeah, good yeah. for you, yes. Yep. But okay. can you use it in sachets in your knicker drawer? I yes, know. I am. Um, yes. <laughs> no, I've never you, been a fan of lavenders. Are you I... casting lavenders upon my mother's recommendations? <laughs> Probably. Uh, I do th- I think they look beautiful in the garden but I do think that Stephen's right that you do need to replace them although I got some French lavenders that looked terrible and I pruned them really hard which I Mm. thought well this is an absolute waste of time they've all come back yeah it can happen that way Mm. the reverse can happen too of course because sometimes you do prune them hard and they just give up the ghost well whenever I've done it on the angustifolia the so-called English Mm. lavender they've died I don't think it does work they suffer a bit they they? suffer yeah yeah. Mm. but But the French are the very big ones yeah Yeah. you know the big tall Get a bit, get a bit rocky and rolly and fall mm. over sometimes. But they're a really good plant for those horrible, horrible spots where you really can't get anything else to grow. Yeah, you're not convinced me. <laughs> okay, Just you get like a salt lavender. bush going. And, yeah, and yeah. which is actually a very beautiful Australian alternative. Mm. Mm. Yeah, mm. so there you go. All right, have we got anybody coming in or do no, we talk no, about some plants? You can talk about a plant, Stephen. All right, well, actually, what I want to talk about is a slightly bizarre thing. And having come back from New Zealand, I can't help myself. Uh, um, I bought in a Pseudopanax ferox, and there is a picture up on our web, uh, on our social media of it. And it is one of the world's most bizarre plants. Um, and it has a story, which I think is really fascinating. Pseudopanax ferox grows as a single stem, usually up to around about four metres, three to four metres, and it has these hacksaw-like brown leaves, so it looks dead. Um, But it's very structural and architectural, looks fantastic in modern landscaping with lots of glass and concrete and what have you. Um, And so it's a very structural plant and it's used a lot in New Zealand. And then when it gets to about that height, suddenly it will branch and you end up with a lollipop on a stick with shorter leaves that go green uh, and a wonderful fluted trunk. So it, it completely changes its characteristics when it goes into its adult form and in fact when they were first discovered in the wild the juvenile form and the adult form were put in two different genera because they thought they were so different that they were completely different plants and the thing I love about it is the story of why now, you know why would a plant grow up to three or four meters tall in a single stem with brown dead looking leaves on it and then suddenly become this green lollipop tree at the top and the theory is that it's due to the giant mower birds And, of course, they don't exist anymore, but the plant doesn't know that. Um, So they grew up tall enough with brown leaves, because birds don't see brown terribly well, and hard, inedible-looking leaves, so that they could get above mower height before they'd actually start to get proper green leaves on the top. Uh, So it was a defence from mowers uh, that they developed, which I think is fascinating. And, uh, And lots of plants in New Zealand did develop in weird ways because they had no natural browsing mammals. They only had large birds. Um, and so they'd either do what the, the Lancewood did, the pseudopanax, or they'd go in the other direction, which is something common in New Zealand where it's called devarication. So they get zigzaggy branches and tiny little leaves because birds don't munch like a mammal does. They peck. So if 
something has tiny little leaves on zigzaggy branches, it's much harder for them to get a belly full and to kill the plant than it would be if they had big lush leaves on them. So, and brown is a common colour in New Zealand flora. So lots of things have brown foliage. Completely unrelated plants have brown foliage and devaricated branches, which is really fascinating. You know, this sort of evolving in the same way from completely different origins. So, um, yeah, so I think that's it's a fascinating flora. And a pseudopanax in the garden, a well-grown one, will always create comment. Some of it not necessarily positive, um, but it is a really fascinating plant. So, Stephen, looking looking at this now, I, I've just reached across and felt the leaves, and it, it, it truly is hacksaw-like, yeah, isn't it? You it's, could probably cut yourself on this leaf. It, it, it's amazing. So, so wet feet? No, it doesn't need to be wet. It doesn't like to get dry, dry, uh, but as long as it's got adequate moisture uh, but reasonable drainage, seems to be reasonably hardy. I'm not sure how it copes with 45 degrees in a howling northwesterly because that's something it wouldn't have to cope with in New Zealand. So, so if I decided at home I didn't want it to go right up that high and then branch out, if I cut that about... At, at a certain height, or I pinch the top out, will that force it to do its lollipop on a stick at a shorter height? Or uh, it's possible, uh, although it might just decide to send up two shoots from where you've pricked it out and keep going as a juvenile until it gets to the height it wants to be. Ah, okay. uh, so you may not win that one. Mm. Uh, I think you're better to plant it where it can do its natural thing. So there so you go, Pseudopanax ferox. I'm not going to be able to fool it then. No, I don't ah, think okay. so. We have a, a phone call from Marion in Frankston. Who came to your nursery yesterday, Stephen? Oh, good morning, Marion. Good morning, Stephen. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I was up there yesterday with my cousin and I bought nearly a tanaka from you. Yeah. And I didn't take a photo of the description. Yeah. And I thought I'll easily be able to find stuff on the internet about it and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you I grow rare plants. Um, all right, the, 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 it's a fairly straightforward shrub. Um, it will grow to about a metre and a half to two metres tall. Its branches will come up and arch over, so it has a very elegant form. You get rather pretty serrated leaves that go a nice yellow in the autumn before they shed, and you get those lovely little spikes of flowers on it in summer. So it's summer flowering, so it comes out after the main spring nonsense is over. It doesn't want to be in the hottest, driest spot you can find in the garden, but nor does it want to be in a really wet, soggy, uh, shady spot somewhere in between, which should suit it well. Um, and every few years you go through and cut the older branches out of it. So you refurbish the bush by just taking out the older twiggier branches. So how's that? Uh, that sounds great. That's true. <laughs> Yes, the the only stuff I could find on the internet, they said the flowers were a creamy colour, but the one that I got from you has got these very pretty little pink flowers. Yes. Yeah, so there's a a couple of different sorts, I guess. Uh, It's a small genus, but there's about five, six species. Uh, It's a bigger genus than it was because uh, Nelia and Stefan Andrew have been lumped together, so they're all now Nelias. So uh, uh, Tanaki used to be a Stefan Andrew and is now a Nelia. Um, So, um, yes, it's a comparatively new change in name, so not everybody's caught up yet, particularly seeing as it's a fairly obscure group of plants. Where do they come from, Steve? Uh, They're mainly Asian, I think mainly through China. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one or two might extend into Japan, but, um, yeah, they're Asian in origin and really pretty group of plants. Thanks very much, Marion. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And we also have a 
call on line eight from Laura in North Melbourne, who has a begonia question. Good, Good morning. morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a begonia which was bought at one of the begonia shows down the bay. It was a present some years ago. And the bit underneath, I don't know what it's called. Is it a call? It's, anyway, so so it's obviously one of the low growing ones. It's not it's not a shrubby yeah. one. It's it's, no, it's, it's not a cane begonia. It's it's is it a pretty is it a pretty leafed coloured one? No, it's green with a creamy flower and the sepals have a bit of pink on the base. Right. And they hang down and look like bells. Yep, yep. And yep. I think I had the label. I put it aside, and it's gone down a black hole. <laughs> As these things <laughs> that, tend to that do, that happens. What? We all we all what? recognise that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's South American. Hmm. A lot of them are. Hmm? A lot of oh, them right. are. Yep. Um, and the what do you call the bit underneath the corn? Well, well, it could be tumor. The, the, the tumor oh, or the rhizome. Yeah, okay. Well, that has got bigger and bigger, and every year I put it into a bigger pot. Well, it's getting to be a bit ridiculous. Can I cut it? Absolutely. Yep, yep. All of, all of those, you, you can divide those. Well, so, so the difference between those rhizomaceous begonias and a tuberous begonia is they will always make up new root systems, new root surfaces. Um, a tuberous begonia... It's not advised to cut those up because they'll never, ever, ever make roots down that scar surface. The scar surface is the surface you put the knife through and it leaves mm. a, the inside exposed. It heals, but it will never, never root. So you've, you're asking um, a th two plants to do the same work with a third of the root system, okay? Right. So that little chap you're talking about being a rhizomaceous begonia, yes, you can divide it. You can strike them from leaf cuttings. Um, it's probably getting a bit late to divide it. Oh, right. yeah, you, well, you, wouldn't I do that in the winter when it's Yeah, down? not winter, but, yeah, at the end of winter, just as, as the right. weather's starting to pick up, where it's in full active growth now, um, you, you could try taking a little piece off the outside um, perimeter of the plant, um, maybe well, two centimetres, an inch and a half long sort of thing, um, remove all but two or three of the very end flowers, remove the ones if there's any along that old stem you're removing, um, and then plant it. Don't plant it horizontally, but plant it vertically so that right. then becomes the crown of the plant. Right. Okay. And you'll probably need to put a, a skewer or something in and tie the leaves to it because they're going to be a little bit floppy and they're going to fall over and look a bit unsightly yeah. until it makes up some new root and can support itself. Okay, I'll have a go. Have Which a go. I can't keep in a good open mix. In bigger pots. Yep. <laughs> in a good open mix and some fertilizer now too. Good, right. Okay. Best Thank of luck you. then, Laura. Bye Thank bye. You. Well, that was a good question. I like that question. Mm. Lots of information but, for people. One of one of those rhizomaceous ones. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Right, we can do one more plant. Well, I've still got one that was thrown up on our social media, so I suppose it wouldn't be a bad idea to mention it, uh, and I can mention it fairly quickly. Um, 
It's a group of plants that comes from mainly the Canary Islands and the Azores. Um, they were called Isoplexus. Uh, they've now been dumped in with Digitalis, so they're now foxgloves. And this one is Digitalis canariensis, or the Canary Islands foxglove. And it's a shrubby plant, metre, metre and a half tall, and it has these spikes of burnt orange flowers with lovely sort of um, dark burgundy lines inside the blooms um flowers for months and months and months likes a sunny aspect reasonably well-drained soil um and it goes on and on it just goes on and on and, and it's, you can hack them back yeah, and ch- they reflower and they'll they'll bush up again uh, really good group of plants i find that with mine because i've got quite a few of them in the garden that if i prune them well they really come back very well you mm. know they, they're not like um your ordinary digitalis, yeah. which just disappears. Yeah, yeah. No, these these are good, solid, shrubby digitalises. Then, as far as I know, all of this group, uh, these sort of shrubby ones, are all in the sort of orangey shades of flowers. I've never come across anything other than the hybrids, which you give that hybrid that bit of pink sneaking yeah, in there, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're but they're not in. as long lived either. No, they're not. I think the wild species are the best ones to grow, and it's that sort of shade of burnt orange is not that easy a colour to get in plants. And it's, I it, find it really appealing. It's that antique looking, yeah. isn't it? Terracotta almost, yeah. and and that once again they are a great cut flower. Yeah, and they're yeah. just beautiful things in the garden. And there is another one which I think might be from Madeira, which has a finer leaf. Yeah, there, there's finer leaf ones, and there's also big leaf ones. Uh, uh, so, but they're all shrubby, uh, and uh, uh, I think, and they're all orange, and they're all in shades of orange. So uh, they're obviously bird pollinated in the wild, and I think they're underutilized and underseen garden plants, and they really grow well. They're, it's I've a seen fantastic them. evergreen little shrub, really. It is, isn't it? and yep. I've seen it in some pretty hostile conditions. I mean, they've got them growing really well at the um, botanic gardens down in. Um, camper down and that sits up on the top of a hill and the wind howls through and it's cold in the winter and it's hot and dry in the summer and the canary island flora does really well down there so uh they're a very easy group of plants. So Digitalis, uh, in this case Canariensis, but there's Septrum, there's Isabelliana, there's a, a range of different species of them and they really are well worth growing. I agree. I think they're excellent. Now, we've had a very good question come through. What is your opinion about having worms in pots? Yeah. I'm glad they said worms in pots. Yes. <laughs> going to recommend a chemist. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, Kim works really well. Um, it, it depends. If, if it's a, if it's, sometimes you get those little tiger worms and they work their way through your cactus or your orchid pots, they're going to cause a little bit of trouble because yeah. they're, they're, cause, they're, they're accelerating well, they're, the breakdown. Yeah, that's right. The they're breaking mix. down the potting mix, so um, that's the only real issue with them. But, 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 but they're going to aerate the soil and do wormy things that are They're going to make castings and they're going to do all sorts of things and they're going to change the makeup of the soil ever so slightly because I shouldn't imagine you would get hundreds of worms to one pot. You might get one or two. But also, once again, if the pot's sitting out on the lawns or, or in direct contact with the soil, because we've had all of this water, yeah. the wormies want to get somewhere dry. So I've, I've seen it at home myself where the worms have actually gone into the pots to get away from so much water. Um, I, I'm... I'm I would assume if it's a plant that needs to have a drier root run over the winter, you may have a few problems with the castings being in the pot, breaking the no. soil down a bit quicker. You don't think so, no, Virginia? No, I don't but, think yeah, so. I, 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 think, I think it says 
there's something quite good about her soil. I mean, her potting mix, if mm. the worms are happy there. Yeah, yeah. so I certainly wouldn't worry about it unless I actually see some evidence of be, uh, there being an issue. Uh, I think in most cases it's probably not a problem. And Paul, I just called you a her. I'm very sorry. But, they, but, they, but they've definitely made their way into pots when the pots are in direct contact yeah. with mm. the soil because mm. it's because it's wet and and it's a normal thing for them to do. Yeah, go and break down. Yeah, it's now almost time for us to leave you. So this has been the Three CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward, and you've been listening to Pete and Stephen with me. Next week we have AB on with Stephen Wells and Greg Balderston. So that will definitely be. An excellent show to listen to. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Bye.